Well, let me put everyone at ease that this morning's message, as has been read for you, will not be an exploration into Phil Robertson or Duck Dynasty and its impact upon all of us. So we won't be talking about that this morning. Maybe the only people, but we won't be. What is significant, however, for our time together is uh, I mentioned to you last week as we were looking at faith biblically, trying to define, that is, um, what can be, as I said earlier, a bit precarious is the idea of your faith or the essence of biblical faith. And then if it's perceived as a bit precarious on your part, that is, uh, we can turn inward regarding our faith and then be concerned subjectively about our faith because we constantly hear the exhortation to believe or to be faithful and then we can be excited about that and at that very same time a bit discouraged by that because we're uncertain of where faith comes from. Uh, So how can I guarantee my faithfulness? That is, where do I get my faith from? How do I get more of it? Is that even something I need to ask for, is more of faith? These questions can surround, and they either create, as I said last week, the pendulum can swing on the exhortation to be faithful or to believe. It can be the arrogance on the one hand is, I have the faith that's necessary to believe, and I invest it wisely. And uh, there is some part of desire within me to act in this particular manner. And it can create an arrogance on that side. Everyone not doing what I'm doing or acting as I'm acting is obviously less than who I am. They need to just do what I'm doing. Then the other side, it can be a bit of a a, a discouraging or crushing blow to hear the word of uh, be faithful, act faithfully. Maintain steadfast in your faith. It can be discouraging to some because they look inward and they say, I'm not the person that that person is. They obviously are faithful and I am not. Um, And it can be kind of a downward spiral from there of a broken spirit because there's this commodity of faith that I seem not to have. Yet I'm exhorted to be faithful and I'm told it all depends on my faith. So we wanted to explore that because as our church is going through the book of Hebrews, there is a constant exhortation there to be found faithful. And there's warnings there. If you are not faithful, this is the outcome. And so we want to pause. I wanted to uh, pause for a moment and just kind of get at the heart before we continue with the exhortation to be found faithful, kind of get at the essence of what faith is and where it comes from. So that there can be a personal assurance there as you hear the exhortation to exercise faith and you hear the warnings of not being found faithful, there'll be a way to have a steadfast anchor and that that warning will actually serve you positively rather than break you down. You'll find the promise in the warning. And so I want to talk about faith uh, last week and I said to you there are two points that we explored last week. One... Faith, for those of you who weren't with us last week, and uh, for those who were and were kind of with us or not. Uh, 
I said the first foot out the door is, again, the source of faith. Where does it come from? Uh, that we can move it from this internally precarious position. And that, that is, faith is a gift, not a virtue. And we explore he who is the author and perfecter of our faith. That is, where we then, the writer says, fix our eyes. Because he is its author and, it, and its perfecter. So that is leading us to point number two. Faith becomes virtuous. So point one, it is a gift, not a virtue, but it becomes virtuous because of its object. Virtue being that which is within every individual just by fact of being alive. The definition of a virtue being a high moral standard or a, quote, worthiness. I'm suggesting to you the biblical picture of faith is not that at all. It is not a high standard of morality. It isn't a worthiness that you then take and then choose uh, uh, a bit precariously how your wise investment is going to go and how you're going to maximize the return. Rather, we recognize the source that is authorship and perfection. He who gives and keeps is Jesus. And the constant exhortation then is fix your eyes on Jesus. Uh, or there, consider Jesus. Uh, Hebrews 2 1. Uh, 3 1. 3 1. Thank you. As a chapter, I can see it in my mind. You know how your Bible is laid out a certain way in your mind? And that's the only way you can find a verse is if you can picture it on the page. Um, so by recognizing that faith is virtuous because of its object who is Christ Jesus the Lord that exhorts us to a word of direction again and again and again to be strengthened personally assured we look outward not inward that's assurance. Not, remember the protocol. Did I have both eyes closed when I prayed? Did I say it with the right tone of voice? Did I even really mean it? And on and on goes whatever uh, your internal mechanisms of judgment are concerning your faith. It's greater than that. It looks outward, not inward. The direction of our faith is to an object who is a person. We look out and we behold Jesus. And we find with that investment, he is the one who gave the faith. And he is the object of that faith he's given. And as the object, the source, he is its keeper, the perfecter of our faith. That's assurance rather than virtue that is a bit precarious. And it started with me, it's kept by me, and I better be just right on. We want to consider faith biblically. Listen to this text as I read it for you. You don't have to turn there because, again, I'm just going to make an hour-long introduction 
and then we'll get to the substance of things this morning. But I, I, let me just read this text for you that kind of accentuates this point. And you'll be very familiar with this, most of you, anyway. Romans 4. Uh, I'll, I'll read just, I'm going to jump into the text 19 and then read 19, 20, and 21. That's it. So Romans 4, 19 through 21, that demonstrates this same kind of faith in the exhortation to you. Let me just briefly read. He, this is Abraham, if you're familiar He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. Now, listen to the text as it's read. The man Abraham, this exhortation as faith is a gift and it is virtuous by its object. He who is Christ the Lord. Listen to the way Abraham is working through his faith and the direction that he places it and the way he handles faith. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. Reality, right? That which is tangible. Why didn't he weaken in his faith when he considered his body? What's going on with his body? Well, his body was as good as dead. That is, as far as childbearing is concerned. Since he was about 100 years old. Or, when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Two tangible obstacles to the outcome. He saw them, and he considered them. Yet so far we have with Abraham, he did not weaken in his faith. Verse 20. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. Object. Right? See the direction of Abraham's faith already? He's considering. He recognizes. But he looks out concerning not his barrenness or or, or Sarah's barrenness and his old age. He didn't consider those things. He looked beyond them. No distrust made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. Verse 21, fully convinced. And here is the outcome of his faith. That God was able to do what he had promised. That's the direction of faith, not inward. Sure, there's challenges. Hey, I'm 100 years old. My wife is barren. There's roadblocks. But he didn't stay there. He looked out. Faith's object is Christ the Lord. God is able. Our faith, according to this text, as I move along, our faith, according to this text, is if you were able to kind of hear the logic and put the text together, our faith, according to what Abraham had occur, is that one, grows strong, two, there is peace of personal assurance that develops. How? How does, how, how does faith grow stronger? How does peace of personal assurance develop in the life? As we are convinced, like Abraham, not that we ourselves are able it isn't just a, a, a psychological develop in the mind that you just need to brainwash yourself and convince yourself that things are going to be all right. That is not the exhortation to faith. Abraham couldn't perform that enough. That's the biblical text. He didn't like trick himself into thinking things are going to be better. He was convinced they will be better. Not because of himself, but God who is able. Faith looks out. And it's convinced, not that we are able, but that God is able. 
But as I introduced to you last week, those two points, I did make mention that there are two points left. And so I would like to cover both of those points as we consider uh, approach from Hebrews, the text that was read for you, that there are two points that I'd like to cover yet this morning regarding faith. So they can either be to you points three and four, or they're points one and two, because they're parts three and four from last week, or one and two if you've only been here so far this morning. So two additional points concerning biblical faith that we'll see arise out of the text of, if you're there now, uh, the book of Hebrews. If you could turn there, just we'll work through the text uh, where we have been trying to get through. Um, Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, kind of in between them both. But there are two additional points uh, that I want to cover this morning. That is two additional ways in which Scripture defines faith. Number one, how is it again, uh, if I could, sorry, if you're just poised to mark this out. Let me just say, number one, faith is a gift, not a virtue. Two, faith becomes virtuous because of its object. Number three, or number one for this morning, faith is not an outward conformity, but a heart's confession of Christ. That kind of focuses or builds on point two there. Number one, faith is not an outward conformity, but a heart's confession of Christ. I want to show you how that's the case from Psalm 95, the use of Psalm 95 here in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. He's using this, the apostle is, to exhort you this morning regarding your faith. And he speaks to you directly concerning your heart in the matter. Look at how, he, how many times he uses heart as the object and the, and the point of concern for the exercising of faith. Look if you're there in chapter 3, verse 7. Let's just begin there. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, and here he's again using Psalm to leverage to the church, faithfulness. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Again, faith is, an outward, is not an outward conformity but a heart's confession of Christ. So he goes directly at the issue of do not harden your hearts. Not your ears, your hearts. Look at verse 9. He continues, Where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Sorry, verse 10. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray. Where? In their heart. They have not known my ways. Verse 12. Take care. Here's his exhortation to you. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. And then if you look as the text that was read for you this morning, he says yet again in verse 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Here the apostle addresses the heart five times by direct statement, right here in one, well, if we include one statement so far in chapter four, two chapters. Five direct statements regarding the heart of an individual. This this is what he's, why? Why is he speaking directly to the heart? Again, Hopefully, in this moment, as we're hearing from the word of the Lord, all of our hearts are open 
the text. And so he speaks to the heart of the hearer. Five times. Heart, 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 heart. Why? I would suggest to you because long before a single outward incident of disobedience occurs, long before a single outward incident that is something observable by another, long before a single outward incident of disobedience occurs, there is a growing tendency for refusal and defiance in the heart. Long before. This manifests itself in this grotesque way that injures both yourself and someone else or just begins that, that activity of downward spiraling. Long before these physical manifestations occur, these outward incidences occur, there is a growing tendency, a subtle growing tendency for refusal and defiance in the heart. This is exactly what he says in verse 12. Look at verse 12 that I'd already briefly read for you in chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, he addresses the heart. Why? Because look it. Long before an outward act there in the text of verse 12, leading you to fall away from the living God. You notice the exhortation to the heart comes before the falling away. Falling away doesn't just occur. You know, the husband doesn't wake up one day, pull back the covers, and walk out the door and leave his family. Because he thought that was a good idea at 6 a.m. on Monday morning. And never came back. Then they saw each other in divorce court, and screamed at each other, and the children were broken. That didn't just occur to him that morning, making coffee. I think I'll leave. That occurs in the heart. Long before the obedience manifests itself physically. So faith is not an outward conformity. It didn't keep him at the house. It didn't keep him loving his family because he went to church. <laughs> it's not an outward conformity. It's a heart's confession of Christ. Take heed to your heart. Not external reform. This is the concert exhortation that he's giving us this morning. Thus, the apostle warns exactly that in verse chapter 4. If you're there and your page is open, you can see both passages. Because it's a heart issue, this is what the apostle warns each of us this morning regarding our heart. Look in chapter 4 at verse 12 yet again. Discerning, the very last portion of verse 12. Discerning, this is the word, power, will of God does what? It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So he's addressing us this morning. That faith is not an external conformity. 
It is a heart's confession of Christ. And therein is where the power and the penetration of God's word goes. Not to your outward acts. It goes directly and penetrates to the heart. So for any standing thinking, I can pull it off externally. Throw some product in my hair and go to the assembly. He's warning you, you can't do it like that. Because you've come to praise God and hear from the word of the Lord. It penetrates past the product all the way down into the heart. There's where the substance of faith exists. So he warns us, don't just come along for the ride. The word of God will lay the heart bare. Don't be hardened there in your heart. Listen to these texts. I cite for you Isaiah 29, 13. Just listen to the text. This people honors me with their lips. This, you're, you're probably familiar with this contrast. God's speaking and indicting Israel. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Do you hear the penetrating word of the Lord? Here we just sang. What a tremendous song that was, right? At the end. Uh, all of them. But as I'm thinking of the end. Um, all glory be to Christ. And if you, did, you paid attention to line by line, and in the way that it was growing in these revelatory pages on the song, as it's moving forward to the climax of redemptive history where he returns and, and his people, we will air his people forever be, or whatever, that, that, that idea. We're singing that, and we must be singing it from the heart. Because this people honors me with their lips. Do you see the point? It's discernible to the only person who matters, God. It's discernible. He can distinguish the lips from the heart. Though we cannot, I cannot judge you, you cannot judge me. I mean, in a sense of, are you singing it from the heart? Are you? Are you? How are we doing? What do we do? But the vertical, not the horizontal, the vertical is already assessed that there is a contrast between lips and heart. So it is, he indicts his people. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This is the distinguishing between conformity or confession. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Uh, this is just the second text that I want to give to you on this point. So no need to turn again. But 1 Samuel 16, 7. Again, you're probably very familiar with this assessment. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. This is a, a, a statement of fact that just is in all categories. This is the distinction between creator and creature. 
Here it is. The Lord sees not as man sees. Period. That's the distinction. Then the description of how that works itself out is how we tend to view things. This is how man is. Man looks, this is how we are. We are limited by capacity to be able to do this. We look on outward appearance. But not so with the Creator. The Lord looks on the heart. Appearance can be conformity. But the Lord looks upon the heart, which is a confession. So I would ask you, building on our other two points, when God looks upon your heart, as he does so, let me read for you verse 12 of Hebrews 4. Lest we move past application and we think it doesn't apply. Does the Lord really look on my heart? Yes, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. And here's the bottom line. To whom we must give an account. So again, if we take this universal application, all creatures as in everybody present, God sees the heart. So when he does, are you now nervous about the percentage of your virtues? Or are you secure? Because he'll know, as he sees, the object of your faith is Christ. When he sees, he does, period, we know that. He does see, when he does, does, do I hope what he sees is good intentions? No way, right? When he sees and all creatures give account, I hope in my accounting he sees sincerity. No. Well, maybe he just won't look. No, we already surrendered that, didn't we? He is looking. Okay, great. We're all on the same page. He is looking. So now we're all in the same condition. And we're all offered the same object. He who is Christ the Lord is the object which then makes my faith virtuous because of him, not me. So when he looks as he does, I trust by faith he sees Jesus as the object of my faith. So I have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Jesus, who is the forerunner of my faith, is a high priest. How long? Forever. This is biblical faith. Faith is not an outward conformity, but a heart's confession, and that's what the apostle is driving at. Do not harden in the heart. Secondly, point number two, or point number four, 
uh, point number two of faith is that faith is not a passive repose on God. Faith is not a passive repose on God, but is an active pursuit of God. Final reading, faith is not a passive repose on God, but is, faith is an active pursuit of God. Let me show you how that is the case. Uh, If you just look there in the exhortation from the Apostle of chapter 4, verse 1, look how he speaks. Therefore, while the promise of entering, here's a promise to enter, his rest still stands. That is, enter, enter. It is an active pursuit. Look in verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. He continues in verse 9. So then, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Verse 11, the final exhortation regarding this rest. Let us therefore, and the key term there you're looking at in this active pursuit of God as he's exhorting us. It is not a passive repose, but it gives way to an active pursuit. And that is verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So as we consider faith's object, who is Christ, speaks to its direction. Strive speaks to faith's action. It must be action, right? Let's simplify a bit. Consider the term that I've kind of isolated there in verse 11, as you would consider your faith live before the Lord. Verse 11, let us strive. The term there, strive. I mean, each of us could probably put it together. I just want to make sure that it comes across quite frank, quite simple, and accessible. That is the term strive, translated there, strive, is to make haste or to be in earnest, right? I mean, that that would make sense. Let us be earnest. Or that is the term strive is to concentrate one's energies on the achievement of a goal. Concentrating energy. So you could take it anyway. Consider the term strive. Making haste, acting in earnest, or concentrating one's energies to achieving a goal. Pretty straightforward. And the goal that is out in front is nothing less than eternal rest. The Sabbath day of God is eternal rest. That's the language, if you look in the text earlier there that I just read for you, Verse 8, not a type of rest. That is what Joshua provided. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, that is ultimate. Indeed, he gave them a time of rest. God would not have spoken, uh, rest. God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, to the church, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his So it is, we see there, that the ultimate goal that one is striving for, by doing what? Looking to Jesus. Considering Christ. Being a disciple. Is nothing short of the eternal rest of the Lord. We shall for air be his people. 
whatever that ending is there. That's it. And right now, by the grace and power He provides, we strive. Fixing our eyes on Him. Same exhortation comes to us in chapter 11, and we'll eventually get there. I won't go each chapter this slow, I promise. So we will arrive at chapter 11, and chapter 11 is the same exhortation. If you would turn there, because I just do want to walk in our kind of concluding time. I do want to walk just briefly in chapter 11 through verse 6. So we'll walk through chapter 11 here, verse 6, just for a moment, as we see this is the same exhortation. Again, faith strives. It is not an a-, a passive repose. It is an active engagement or pursuit of God. That's faith's evidence. Here in what is commonly referred to as the hall of faith, in chapter 11 here, look at verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Look carefully at that text. I just want to draw out what it's saying. Do you see that it is impossible to please God for whoever and the whoever drawing near is explaining the pleasing? Do you see that in the text? Consider with me the logic, just for a brief moment, the way this text is speaking. Verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please him. How are we pleasing to God? How? How so? By drawing near. The drawing near is the pleasing. And how can we draw near and be pleasing? By faith. It's impossible to draw near. Meaning it's impossible to be pleasing. Apart from faith. So he exhorts us in our faith. Two things. Look carefully. This is what faith does. It believes. That God exists. It believes. We're back where we started at point number two. It looks to Jesus. It looks outward. Do you see that in the text? It must believe that He exists. It looks out to the object who is Christ the Lord. That's biblical faith. It looks out and sees Jesus. Faith's object. And secondly, so first it must believe that is Christ as faith's object. And the second portion is he who believes and that he, God, rewards those who seek him. Not a passive repose. I see Christ as faith's object. I look to Jesus. I fall down, pass out, faint, it's over. No. I look to Jesus, I fix my eyes, and I engage. I pursue. That's what faith does. And the pursuing is the evidence of believing. 
Look at the text. This is simply the text. He must, one, must believe that God exists. It looks to Jesus. And that he rewards. You must believe. As you look to Jesus, those who do what? Lay down? Those who seek, actively pursue. When I was in seminary, they teach you in preaching classes. Um, or if maybe even better, you read a preaching book somewhere along the lines. And you're putting three quarters of the people to sleep all the time. So you're, you know, you're, you're dusting off some old preaching books. What's the key to this? They always suggest, at the end, with your listeners... You have to ask, so what? Right? Like everybody's just dying to find out, so what? That's the key. You've got to ask, so what now? Or so what? Or what difference does this make? That's what the listener wants to know. We've talked about faith for two weeks and four points. So what difference does this make? As a good student in obedience to the book, I'll ask and answer. What difference does it make? It makes all the difference in the world. Both in this life, personal assurance, a firm foundation, and in the life to come. That Christ is the object of your faith. That you are not the source or the very weak perfecter, but that he who has been raised is the source. And he who returns will be the perfecter. Let us pray. Father, I ask that you would strengthen us to hear your penetration.